as as a wise man once said, Dan, don't give it the hate that leads to the dark side. This is Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it can't be complained about. By my friend and your host, John Syracusa, I'm Dan Benjamin. Today is Friday, November 30th, 2012. This is episode number 96, and there are only 100. Only a few left to go. I know. I'd like to say thanks very much to our three sponsors, Koku, over at kokuapp.com, shutterstock.com, and sourcebits.com, and we'll tell you more about those as the program continues. I'd also like to say thanks very much to MindNode. They're our bandwidth sponsor for the whole month of November. They're an intuitive mind mapping app for Mac and iOS. Whether you're brainstorming for your next project, organizing your life, or planning your vacation, MindNode lets you collect, structure, and expand your ideas. They have iCloud sharing. They got it all. Check them out at mindnode.com. Hi, John. Hello, Dan. How is everything going? It's just fine. I didn't see you online and I was worried. But no. Here you are. There I am. You're hiding. I'm hiding in plain sight, as they say. Yep. All right. Got a lot of notes on today's show. I can't tell when I have a lot of notes if it will be long or short, but I do have a lot of notes. So we better get going. Let's do it. What should we start with, do you think? Well, I, I am not privy to your notes, so I, I don't know. We start with follow-up, Dan. What do you think of oh, that? Oh, well, I don't... I love follow-up. I love the follow-up segment. All right. Uh, first bit of follow-up is about the Wii U. We talked about in the past couple of shows. Now, let me, I have an announcement to make. All right, already, already. Okay, a Wii U, a black deluxe Wii U is winging its way to you, hopefully for arrival to you next week. Well, that's excellent, Dan. Thank you very much. And thank you to whoever helped you source that. That will remain a secret until later. My secret benefactor. That's right. I mean, I, I'm right. the benefactor, but they were the middleman. And they will, be, they will be well compensated for their efforts. Or middle woman. Middle, middle man. Okay. It's 50%, 49% of the population ruled in, 51% ruled out. So once this arrives, I'll have to immediately unpack it and set it up and try to do some playing. And then we'll see what show that ends up fitting in. Yeah. You know, because I have to, I like a lot of these games are multiplayer. So I'm going to have to enlist the family to, you know, kid test the game and mom test it and, you know, all sorts of other stuff. So I will report back. Yes. This will be exciting, but it's the black. That, no, here's a question. Do you, it, it, the, the, the Wii U comes with the, like the one controller with the screen in it. And the deluxe set has like a little base and a little charger and comes with a game and some other things. Um, will that be sufficient for your testing? Will you, because I understand it uses, you can use like regular Wii style controllers and things like that with it. Do you, do you feel like you're set? It has an HDMI connector. I mean, are you set up to go? Is there anything else you'll need to give this the proper uh, checkout or, or anything? I think I've got everything. I, I've right. got a bucket full of like old Wii accessories. So I've got plenty of Wii motes and nunchuck controllers. Of course, they're white, not black. But what can you do? It's the way uh, Nintendo has decided to do its stuff. I really wish they had offered two colors and two different models, and then I would have gotten the, the deluxe one in white. But right. that's not what they did. But anyway... I have all the peripherals and I should be all set on everything else. I 
I may end up eventually getting the uh, the pro controller, but I don't think you even need that to play any of the launch games or anything. And, well, I you know, went I went to sort of potentially source another controller for you as I was resor- re- researching all of this, and I went and it's I, I asked first of all the the pro controllers. Uh, they're larger. They're more like, I don't know. Can I say an Xbox style? Yeah, they, they clearly look like an Xbox controller. Okay. And I, I'm assuming that those are wireless as opposed to corded, yes. but um, those things are really tough to find. Like al- almost, if not as hard as the Wii U console itself to find right now. Yeah, I, I imagined. I mean, uh, eventually I'll get enough peripherals and stuff like that, but Im- immediately I just expect to use the system and, the transfer process from the Wii and then play the pack in game, which is supposed to demonstrate all the different features of the, you know, lots of different games that use the, uh, the controllers in lots of different ways. So that'll be a good test. I think. And what games, uh, will you, this is yours to keep just to be clear. This isn't, you know, this isn't a loner. This is yours. Yes. Will you, will you be able to get your own games for it? Or do we need to send some games along? Maybe we'll send some games. I don't know how many of the launch titles I'm interested in. Like I'm actually was I'm actually interested in in the oh yeah probably that one. Although I do prefer the 3D Mario's to the 2D ones. But uh, I, the Nintendo Land game that it comes with should be sufficient to put the thing through its paces. And Zombie U, even though it looks interesting to me, I don't think I would actually play that. Mm. Yeah. You know? So anyway, uh, so sorry to interrupt with the, the early. I guess it's going to be a long show, but I just wanted to. <laughs> Dan has declared it. Yeah, he has called it for the first time. All right. Uh, yes, this is a, the first bit is a tweet from Cable Sasser, the uh, eminent Mac community member, founder of Panic Software, uh, who's also a gamer. And he tweeted uh, that the Wii U gamepad is really good at pointing out AV delays in your home theater. So he says he put his TV into game mode, which we've talked about in past shows. It's the m- mode some televisions have to reduce the number of processing steps they do to video in the hopes of reducing the latency between the time that the signal hits the back of the TV and the time that that picture appears on the television. And he says he's put his receiver in pure direct mode. If you have a receiver between your game console and your television, sometimes the receivers have a mode that will also not try to do any processing on the audio or the video or whatever, because uh, the, the reason it shows delays is because the Wii U sends the wireless video signal directly to the uh, the gamepad, and then you can see, like if you run it where it's running the same thing on both screens, you can see that while look, you can visually without even measuring equipment just see that the gamepad is ahead of where your television is, despite the fact, as we talked about in the last show, that the gamepad is actually one sixtieth of a second behind the signal coming out of the back of the Wii U along the HDMI cable. But all the other parts of your system may be introducing delays, and it ends up that. Uh, it looks like the gamepad is way ahead. So that's an interesting uh, result of this technology that people are going to find out exactly how much lag is in their AV setups. Uh, there's another article that someone sent along or a bunch of people sent along. It is on VentureBeat. It's the, the title is Forget the Six Axis, which is the name of PlayStation's uh, terrible little controller with the uh, accelerometers in it. The Wii U's gamepad has nine axis control. It's like the Gillette Razor thing. You know, <laughs> F it, we're doing five blades. <laughs> or, that's the onion story, but it became a reality. Right. It's preposterous. Yeah. They would never do five blades. What a joke. And now it's like, can we do, can we do six? Yeah. Well, nine axis control. Are there nine axes? How many axes are there? <laughs> it seems like there should only be X, Y, and Z, but now they're doing nine. Right, so if you read the article, I linked it in the show notes. 
you will see that what they're basically doing is, uh, as far as I can understand from this article, adding more redundant sensors in an effort to be able to filter out noise and stuff like that. So the article talks about the difference between, uh, you know, accelerometers and stuff that you can envision kind of as like a, uh, this is not what they actually are, but uh, imagine a T-shaped uh, wooden channel with a with a steel ball in it or something. And if you tilt it, the steel ball rolls to one end of the thing or the other, and there's another steel ball going in the left and right one, you know, like that's measuring your tilt in, in different axes and stuff. And a lot of those things are just relative. Uh, what you also need is absolute positioning. So you can say, regardless of what I just did with this device, I shook it, I waved it, I moved it from left to right really quickly. What is the absolute orientation with respect to, you know, basically gravity with respect to the Earth? And so they use all sorts of things to try to figure that out, including uh, sensors that measure the Earth's magnetic field to sort of, you know, to tell where is this thing pointing in absolute space sort of relative to the floor of your room or whatever, regardless of how it got there or how it shook or how it was wiggled or how, you know, so it can keep track of where it is. And apparently the gamepad has many more sensors and many more uh, sophisticated systems to do this even better than the Wii Motion Plus that's in the the existing Wii remote controls. Uh, so I'm looking forward to seeing how much that improves things. And I really hope, as does this article, that they backport this tech to the Wii remote controls because anything they can do to, you know, oh, it, it's not like a new feature. The Wii remote control is supposed to already do this, but anyone who's played uh, Skyward Sword on the Wii knows that you have to you know, recenter it and recalibrate it and do all sorts of stuff. And then the Wii uses the IR signal as a sort of last resort orientation mechanism where the IR signal is coming from the top of your television in a fixed position. And when it really loses itself, if you can point it back towards the TV, you can recalibrate it. And it's kind of a big mess. Uh, hopefully the gamepad does better. So I'm looking forward to seeing how well that goes. Uh, Steve Holzer wrote in uh, with a minor point about uh, video latency on the Wii U gamepad. He pointed out that the gamepad's resolution is 854 by 480. It's not the full resolution of like a 1080p television, which is 1920 by 1080. Uh, and it's not even, you know, 720p, which is 19, uh, which is 1280 by 720. Uh, and so he's saying, you know, the, the Wii U probably scales down the video for transmitting. Uh, and you say, well, that's why it makes it easier. It doesn't need to send the full signal. Well, that's bandwidth wise that's true but latency wise scaling down the signal actually adds latency so it's even more impressive that it can manage to take the video output scale it down and then send the scaled down version but it does mean that things on the gamepad might not look as crisp if any games are actually outputting 1080p uh, but the thing about console games is almost all console games have a much smaller render target than the output resolution uh, it's one of the tricks they do to get performance is they will the game will be rendered at a resolution that's smaller than 1080p and sometimes even smaller than 720p. Just to, and, and then they, that's, that's the native pixels of the game engine, right? And then some other part of the GPU right before being out, outputting the thing will just simply scale that image up to fill 720p or to fill 1080p. So a lot of the, and this should be scare quotes around a lot of the games that say that this game is in 720p or this game is, is in uh, 1080p. Like a lot of the time the game is rendering at a resolution smaller than both of those and just simply upscaling to those different resolutions. And the games that are truly native 1080p and 720, they'll become more common with time. But in the current generation of consoles, which have similar power to the Wii U, many games still render have smaller render targets than the output target. Nothing is ever simple, you know? No, it isn't. All right, so uh, last week... I mentioned the idea that regular people who were interested in this topic could learn about how computers work from the gate level on up from, you know, and and NAND gates and stuff like that, uh, all the way up to how a modern computer works. Uh, if you chop off the low end, like not learning about chemistry and physics and doping and 
silicon chips and stuff like that. That removes a lot of the really esoteric, difficult to understand stuff. But from the gates on up, it's something that really anyone can understand. Uh, and I said that I didn't know of any good resources to learn that, you know, other than you know, going to school for four years, which is uh, kind of burdensome. And so I got a lot of suggestions and amazingly I got two suggestions repeatedly for many other people. Like it was basically, I don't think I got, more. it was just two suggestions and tons of people suggested these two things by Twitter and email and stuff. So they must be really good. The first one is the book called code by Charles Petzold. Pet, yeah. Petzold. That's right. Uh, the hidden language of, of computer hardware and software. There's a link in the show notes. Uh, Kieran Healy was the first one to suggest it. What he says is that, uh, it begins with a lovely conceptual introduction to Boolean logic and builds step-by-step step up to a tour of the Motorola 68000 series and the Intel 8080, and from there to integrated motherboards and programming languages. It's really a beautifully constructed, wonderfully clear book, a minor classic, really. And someone else whose name I shamefully did not include in the show notes, but emailed right after Kieran says, uh, it explains how to build a computer from the ground up in a very accessible way. Starts with information theory and Morse code, and then from te- telegraphy? you know, using a telegraph, mm-hmm. relays to logic gates onwards to building RAM, CPU, and whatnot. It was recommended by a friend and it blew my mind that it's possible to explain this stuff in an accessible way. So if you want a book to learn this stuff, there you go. Charles Petzold's Code, which is an older book, but this stuff really hasn't changed. Uh, and the second very popular suggestion was a website slash sort of build-it-yourself course material slash video series slash textbook slash, you know, <laughs> internet multimedia extravaganza <laughs> it is called from nand to tetris building a modern modern computer from first principles and the website is triple uh, w nand to the number two tetris.org also in the show notes uh, as the site says it contains all the software tools and project materials necessary to build a general purpose computer system from the ground up we also provide a set of lectures designed to support a typical course on the subject this is aimed at students instructors and self-learners everything is free and open source blah 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 so there you go. You have two ways to, to uh, take a crack at this. One, if you just want to read a book, that's a great book. And if you want to sort of do it interactively online or watch videos or sort of do a do-it-yourself course, you want NAND to Tetris. Good old internet. It's got something for everything. Uh, this next one is a bit of follow-up from two shows ago, but I missed it. It was in the show notes. Somehow I missed it. Uh, that's been my new thing lately. I put something in the notes and then just scan over it. It's a shame. Uh, Moore's Law was mentioned many shows ago. And I had said on the show that uh, maybe I did, maybe, maybe my new thing is forgetting that I've already done this follow-up. Anyway, you can tell me. Uh, I'm, I'm said, listen, I don't care how many times you do the follow-up. People love this. I love it. Uh, that Moore's Law was two years. Uh, it was one year I listed originally, and it's actually two years. This is from the Wikipedia article. Uh, Moore's Law is the observation that uh, blah, blah, blah. The number of transistors on an integrated circuit doubles approximately every two years. And it says the period is often quoted as 18 months due to Intel executive David House, who predicted that period for doubling in chip performance, which is not quite the same thing as a uh, number of transistors. And it's kind of a fudge anyway. So Moore's original law, two years, often quoted as 18 months and often misquoted by me as 12 months, apparently. So apologize for the error there. Uh, one more random one before we get to some Intel ARM stuff, which is producing even more follow-up. Uh, this is from Andrew Burwell. He was one of the many people to point out to me this story on MacNN that says OS 10, 10.8.3 beta supports the Radeon HD 7900 series chipsets. Uh, this is nothing earth shattering, uh, but it is exciting whenever we see a new beta of OS 10 with new video drivers because it suggests that future Macs are coming that uh, support 
that include this hardware, because otherwise, why would why would Apple have drivers for it, right? And this hardware is Radeon, is AMD slash ATIs, like top end, uh, very fast video cards. And where would they put a card like that? I suppose they could put one in an iMac, maybe. I mean, they have room in there. They could come up with the cooling solution, but it just doesn't seem like what they normally do. And so this hints heavily towards something Mac Pro caliber, which we all hope is coming in 2013. (laughs) Again, Tim Cook said something for people who like Mac Pros will be coming in 2013. If that something has this video card, uh, you know, a a card from this uh, video card series, I guess you would call them, uh, I would be very happy. So all things are continuing apace for 2013 resurrection of something that will make me happy that may or may not be a Mac Pro. So thumbs up on that in the show notes if you would like to ogle the uh, the details. Show all notes right. are at 5x5.tv slash hypercritical slash 96. Yes. And so the next part we have is all the Intel follow-up. Geez, it's like a half show all by itself yeah i've got intel follow-up and then a couple miscellaneous follow-ups and then this show's topic the intel follow-up could be long should we should we do a sponsor before that and then you can just dive right in and and take all the time you need i think that's a good idea koku how is it koku or koku 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 i've been saying it wrong it's a fresh approach for personal finance management doesn't matter how you say it it's designed to make tracking your money simple and intuitive and uh, you can get this for the mac for the iphone in both of the app stores this is what's cool about it. The apps, they sync via iCloud. So your data stays consistent whether you're at home, whether you're on the go. And th- this is my favorite part of the app is it's got this smart tagging system. It, al- it allows you to describe the transactions that you make in a way that's meaningful to you. It doesn't impose its own hierarchy. It doesn't impose buckets or categories. It- it's-, it's about how you work, how you track your own finances. You define it. And then you use these reports that'll show a personalized financial picture that gives you the real insight into how you're spending your money or, or not spending your money, John, based on those categories that you've created. They had a smart list too. They're kind of like smart playlists, but they're for your transactions. So you can actually see it the way you want to see it. They were featured in the Mac App Store, but the great thing is that both apps are on sale now during this uh, special run they're doing with us for half price. So it's $29.99 for the Mac and $4.99 for the iPhone. Is the regular price half price now? Half price fourteen ninety nine for the Mac, buck ninety nine for the iPhone. Co Q app K O K U A P P dot com. Go check them out. Coco app, they're really awesome. Intel. Well, before that, we got some real time follow up in the chat room. Oh. Uh, first, uh, Evan Hindra asked if he thinks there'll be an improvement on the controls on Wii games when playing on the Wii U. Uh, if they release new Wiimotes with the new internals, new improved internals, uh, I think there could be because as far as the, the Wii system is concerned, when the Wii U is in Wii emulation mode, it would still just like look like a normal Wii remote. It would just have like, you know, it would just be more reliable, uh, less more difficult to confuse. And, you know, maybe, uh, you know, it, it, it should look the same. It should just be better. So that is actually possible if they did that. But it's not going to make an improvement because you can't play Wii games with the gamepad, right? So... It's not going to do an improvement until they, unless they release improved uh, Wii U controls. Uh, MindFed uh, wants me to come back at 2013 when I get my new Mac Pro, so we can, yeah, we'll worry about that if and when it happens. Uh, Dan Hickson wants to say that uh, Ogle has a long O. It's not Ogle. I always say Ogle. I know. I guess it doesn't come up in conversation a lot, but yeah, he's right. It's a long O. Sorry about that. 
All right. Intel. Uh, quick review. This is all about Apple and whether they're going to continue use Intel chips in their Macs and what Intel's position is relative to ARM, the other various ARM CPUs and all that business. All right. So at one point in talking about RISC and CISC and Intel and ARM, I talked about the segment registers on Intel CPUs, which were used way back when to address memory in, in a segmented manner where your uh, memory uh, addresses in your code would be offsets from a segment and you would change the segment register and then the, the offsets would be relative to that and all sorts of stuff like that, which is uh, not used nowadays in modern architectures, but still exists on the CPUs for backward compatibility. And I said that how, how if they could remove one feature to simplify Intel CPUs, my anonymous source said that uh, segmentation would be uh, the one to remove. Well, Daniel Cohen wrote in to point out the interesting things that people are doing. One of the interesting things that people are doing with those segment registers uh, in Google's native client project, which I have a link in the show notes. It's their way to, to you know, run native code on your machine, but delivered via the web. It's not, you know, Java or JavaScript or whatever. Uh, they do a bunch of really clever hacks to run untrusted x86 code sort of in a sandbox in, in a way that is safer because they don't want you know, you to load a web page and then it runs arbitrary code on your CPU because that would be bad, right? So they need some way to to lock it down. And they uh, they use segmentation and the segment registers uh, as a means of uh, enforcing that kind of security. And there's a paper where they describe how this is done. It's in the show notes. It's a PDF if you want to take a look at that. Uh, other CPUs have similar ways to do similar things. Uh, it's not like segment registers are the only way to do this. Uh, but I thought it was interesting because it shows the resourcefulness of engineers that they're finding something useful to do with a feature that's not no longer needed for its old intended purpose, but still exists on the hardware for backward compatibility reasons. So, hey, we can use the hardware for something. Uh, so that's interesting. And then the second use is from Andrew. Oh, goodness, Andrew. <laughs> oh goodness i got nothing on that one s-v-e-i-k-a-u-s-k-a-s sorry andrew should have practiced uh it's amazing how i copy and paste these names into my show notes and never think that you know you're gonna have to say this name maybe take a look at it now so like during the show you aren't surprised by it but you know there you go uh he points out that the x86 segment registers are used to define privilege levels, uh, you know, ring zero, ring one, whatever, uh, in in Windows, uh, in, you know, some x86 operating systems. And Windows also uses them for thread local storage. Uh, and if you don't know what that ring zero business is, I put a link in the show notes to the, the relevant Wikipedia page. It's about uh, protection domains where the most privileged code runs in ring zero. I hope I got that right and not backwards. Uh, and, you know, so you, I, you, the code runs in a different ring and has different privileges and stuff like that. So uh, that's another interesting use of those segment registers, uh, which may be closer to their intended purpose, but still kind of weird. Uh, but anyway, check that out if you're interested. All right. Uh, moving on to the uh, meteor business stuff here. Nine to five Mac had a story this week uh, <laughs> with a great prefix. You know, they do that bunch of words, colon, and then the headline. So their, their prefix is wild speculation colon all right well you know you're being you're being honest right wild speculation colon why a two billion dollar amd purchase would be a puzzle piece fit for apple mm. way to turn a phrase there puzzle piece fit okay uh that link is in the show notes the idea is hey hey guys what if apple bought amd because they make x86 cpus and even though apple thus far has not chosen to go with them because intel has better cpus for less money that use less power that are faster and blah 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 uh, AMD might have some good stuff too. 
Yeah, they're trying to they're trying to sell their Texas campus to raise money, and then they want to like get it back. They're going to sell it and then like lease it back from the owners. Something I don't know. It's weird. Yeah, that like, and the reason this comes up is because AMD is like as it's not doing that well. Like, so people you know people look at it and they're looking at it like maybe Apple could buy them because hey maybe you can get it cheap because like they're not doing terribly but in the intel versus amd war which it once looked like amd might be getting the upper hand now it's like oh poor amd right so yeah i mean intel's got its own problems too but amd may be a bargain so thinking about this i mean first of all apple certainly has the money you know they have they have 100 billion or more in cash and you know amd they could buy for only a couple billion so you know hey it's a bargain Uh, and it would be a way to get some really great cpu and gpu talent because remember amd bought ati and so they've got the all the people from ati are part of that that deal and those guys really know high-end gpus and that's some great talent and as much as i'm loath to even think about things like this i'm sure they have tons of patents from ati and amd has probably got its own patents and amd as we noted before is the one who invented x8664 and yeah so there are valuable assets in amd uh i don't but the thing about it is I don't think Apple really wants to continue making CPUs and GPUs. So if they bought AMD, it would probably mean the end of selling x86 CPU to PC clone makers. And it might even be the end of selling discrete GPUs to, you know, PC makers. Like they would just become, oh, this is our new CPU and GPU team. And I don't even know how you swing that because they're all geographically you know, diverse and located in different offices all over the place. And there's tons of weird redundancy with Apple. And uh, it seems to me that a buyout would mean the end of AMD as we know it. Uh, Apple would get the patents, but I don't know how much of the staff they would retain. It would be like an expensive, ugly, unreliable way to buy talent. Uh, But on the other hand, as this article points out, uh, and as Apple said itself in its press release about the big management reshuffle that we talked about a few shows ago, Apple did say it has, quote, ambitious plans for the future, unquote, for its semiconductor teams. So that would sure be ambitious, you know, buy AMD and try to make your own stuff using all those talent and teams. It just just seems like a, a not a particularly easy business deal to me. And part of me is like, if you just wait long enough, they might go out of business and then you can scoop those guys up for a lot less money, you know? Yeah. Or Intel would just hire them all. I mean, with hiring people, people like to think it's like, oh, uh, if we if we get AMD, we get all those people or we can hire all those people. It's like, no, because they all live all over the country and especially Apple doesn't really like people to be, like they like to have you in California if they can help it, especially if you're, you know, working on some major part of their uh, product strategy. They have different campuses and other places and stuff, but they really don't like telecommuting. And it would be very difficult to sort of take all of AMD scattered people from AMD proper and ATI and somehow make remote campuses or research facilities that contribute to it's just I don't know. You know, it's not like those people say, oh, well, we're just all going to move our families to California and live yeah, right easy. near near Apple. And cheap. That's, yeah, it's it's very difficult to hire people, not because you can't pay them enough or they don't like you, but because they want to live where they live. Like that is a big factor in hiring people. If you're raising a family in a certain place, you know, it's very difficult for any employer to convince you for any reasonable amount of money to uproot your entire family and move someplace else. All right. Next story is from semi accurate, which is a clever website name. Uh, and from what I've gleaned from <laughs> reading a couple of the stories there, it is it's accurate. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Uh, the title, the <laughs> sensational title is Intel kills off the desktop. PCs go with it. 
this is an article from someone who obviously does not like this decision, bemoaning the fact that Broadwell uh, will not come in an LGA package, so that no more re- removable CPU. So Broadwell is the 14 nanometer shrink of Haswell coming, you know, after Haswell. Uh, and Intel has said that they're not going to give you one of those on an LGA package. LGA stands for Land Grid Array, and it's like a mounting mechanism for the CPU, and this kind of mounting mechanism has pins on the motherboard, and then you put, that's why it's called like a land grid, I guess, the, the little pins are on the land, and you put the chip on top of it and sort of clamp it down, and the, chins, the chip's got little uh, contacts, and they push down on the pins. Uh, so the pins are in the socket and not on the little chip itself. And basically this lets motherboard makers make a motherboard and then just have a little square hole for where you, you buy the CPU separately, pick whichever one you want from a, a certain compatible range and stick it in here. And this, you know, he's killing the PC industry. He's like, oh, all, our, all of these things are going to have to be soldered to the logic board. That means the only people who can make logic boards are, you know, you can have to buy the whole unit. You can't, you know, shop around. I'm going to buy this motherboard and this CPU and this hard drive and this video card and plug it all together. I obviously don't care about this because I don't like building PCs that way. Uh, and Intel obviously uh, either doesn't think that's the future or is just trying to wrest more control over it. We talked uh, before our last show about uh, trying to uh, Intel trying to get more control over its products by making uh, a system where it controls more of the components, so it can make all of them low voltage and all of them work together and not be power hungry. And and to do that, it's it, rather than trying to coerce everyone else into doing is making like a spec and say you must use this you must use that and maybe we'll just make the entire motherboard and solder the cpu onto it and this is what you get and tough luck uh which is a big change from the old days where everyone would do their little business and stick to their knitting and this guy would make the cpu and this guy would make the motherboard chipset and this guy would make the actual motherboard and then uh, assemblers would build them all together uh yeah and, and that that sort of interchangeable parts type thing is definitely falling by the wayside in favor of deeply vertically integrated products all the way down to the motherboard where, you know, everything's squished onto as few chips as possible. And then one company is responsible for building the entire system. And it's not like a mix and match thing because mix and match leads to mix and match. As we talked about, I think in a a show a while ago leads to devices that look like typical Dell laptops from a few years ago. And that do not look like MacBook Airs of today, where every single part is custom and everything is soldered on, including the RAM and and the the battery is non-removable and it's just a a custom designed thing from the ground up like a phone. Uh, And that's clearly the way things are going. So, you know, I'm not surprised by this change. I don't have a problem with it, but some people are upset. All right. Next few bits here are about what the heck Apple is going to do for its next series of cpus both for macs and for handheld stuff so the first story is from ars technica headline is apple may tap tsmc to move the a series mobile chips to 28 nanometer process uh, tsmc is taiwan taiwan semiconductor manufacturing corporation and the story is about how uh currently samsung is the sole source for the a5 the a6 and the a6s processors right and samsung and apple don't particularly get along lately they're busy suing each other over <laughs> patents samsung is busy aping the look and feel of Apple's devices and stores and, you know, who knows, maybe they're giving their employees haircuts the same as Apple's employees haircuts. They're definitely copying Apple. Talked about this in the show where I called their behavior dishonorable, whether or not it's illegal or immoral or anything like that. It's certainly dishonorable. Uh, But Samsung is the only other big player in the market that's making profit in the smartphone business. And so Apple and Samsung are going head to head here. 
it's kind of bad when you're paying your competitor billions of dollars to manufacture the critical components of your most popular product. So I, Apple's sure looking for a way out there. But so far, Samsung has, you know, has the best been the best bet, the best game in town for manufacturing these parts. And a lot of the earlier parts, like the A4 and stuff, used Samsung technology, Samsung design, Samsung resources to get done. And the A6 has moved much farther away from that, where Apple's doing design in-house and trying to use Samsung more like a fab. So they're trying to extricate themselves from Samsung. And the question is, who else out there can make the number of chips that, uh, that Apple needs at the process they want? Uh, and this article is speculating about them moving to TSMC, which is just a fab. They'll make your thing. You give them the design, they'll make it for you. Uh, and it's a possibility that's one of the places they can go. I think we mentioned this uh, a couple shows ago as well. Uh, the article points out that uh, TSMC recently rebuffed attempts from both Apple and Qualcomm to gain exclusive access to its fab capacity. So Apple and Qualcomm are, have both been courting TSMC to say, uh, sign an exclusive contract. You will only make stuff for us at this process node in this factory. And they don't want to do it because that's like hemming them in. They want to be a free agent. You know, everyone come to me. We'll, we'll fab for the highest bidder, but we don't want to get locked into just uh, one bidder there. Uh, so it's an interesting dance there. And the other question is, do they have the capacity? Are they going to be able to compete? Again, they're talking about 28 nanometer here. They're not talking about 22, which Intel is currently fabbing out. And they're certainly not talking about 14, which Intel is going to be fabbing out by next year. So they're trying to make a deal for next year to do 28 nanometer uh, fabbing. Uh, the interesting thing about this article and why I put it in the show notes is that it has one of those great promoted comments that Ars Technica does where they read the comments and promote one of the better ones so that it appears alongside the article. Because normally on ours, uh, comments are hidden entirely uh, unless you click on something. So this one is from Sir Omega Rs. He is a commenter and not an Rs writer. And he says, uh, it will happen, meaning that Apple's going to go to TSMC. But TSMC needs to beef up capacity. They need to get on board with Apple-style vendor financing that goes with most of Apple suppliers, where Apple fronts the money for the machines, in this case, 28 nanometer fab, and then the vendor pays them back over time for all the chips that are made. Uh, so that's the way Apple does business with these things is that it will put it's some, it will use some of its tremendous capital to fund the creation of these things or to buy machines like for the aluminum machining and stuff like that and enter into sort of financial deal where it's like we buy the stuff for you and then you pay us back in the product you create. I'm not sure why they structure the deal this way. I'm sure it's some sort of business team cookism thing that I don't understand. Uh, but uh, the two, his two points are one, uh, TSMC needs tons of capacity because it's going to be very difficult to uh, to fulfill Apple's orders. And two, TSMC needs to get used to this kind of financial arrangement because apparently it's what Apple wants. Uh, and he says, uh, see the purported investment in Sharp's new IGZO LCD facilities uh, also getting pulled into uh, 2012. IGZO is indium gallium zinc oxide. Show link in the show notes to the Wikipedia page explaining it's a process for making LCDs. But it's another type of investment where Apple will front the money and then you get paid back in parts that are made. Uh, Sir Omega R's continues, based on the timetables I've read for the migration to 20 nanometers, I don't expect that, uh, Apple to get it here this year. If Apple does a Q3 launch of the next iPhones and iPads, we could see an A7 chip built on 28 nanometer for the 2013 products and an A8 chip built on 20 nanometer for the 2014 products. So here in this speculation, he's saying uh, in 2014, Apple could be on 20 nanometer. Which is kind of depressing if you consider that Intel is on 22 nanometer now and by 2013 is going to be on 14 nanometer. Uh, but anyway, um, continuing, waiting another full year for 20 nanometer is no big deal for Apple since the biggest power drain is out of their control. The LCDs and the cellular radios consume far more than the CPU does. 
that's kind of true, but like it's not out of their control. Like that's why they're trying to invest in LCD things. They're trying to get the the power the power consumption of the LCDs down and the cellular radio stuff. I wouldn't assume that's so out of their control because one of the things that I thought about when they said ambitious plan for semiconductor is what if Apple starts to get into the cell radio business to try to make super low power stuff. Um, so the commenter continues switching to IGZO, and I wonder if there's a way you pronounce that without reading the letters. Anyway, switching it, to IGZO, <laughs> we should we should leave leave that alone. Yes. And Qualcomm's third gen LTE chips will cut power usage enough to make a Retina iPad or iPad mini thin again. So he's saying that just by getting the, the lower power screens and, and new LTE chipsets from Qualcomm or whoever in a lower process size, that will cut power usage enough for, for you know, things like the iPad mini to go Retina or for to make the, the, the big iPad thinner again, uh, even if they're only on 20 nanometer by that point. Uh, so that is one commenter's opinion there. I thought it was interesting. The next article is uh, of similar vintage. It's from Fortune. Uh, if Samsung doesn't supply Apple's processors, who will? So here is an analyst, Amit Dariyaniani, <laughs> Dariyaniani, something like that. And it's a nice little bullet point list of, all right, who, if, if it's not going to be Samsung, who can fab for Apple? And he gives a couple of choices. One is Intel. Uh, and here is his, uh, the quote about this. Intel has, found, has three foundry partners, in, including a bunch of names of companies that I'm not going to try to pronounce. Intel is currently ahead of ARM by 1.5 generations plus FinFET. FinFET is an arrangement, uh, a physical arrangement of the stuff on the silicon chip, uh, the 3D transistor type thing, which is a, a way of uh, making transistors with a different, different layout of layers on top of each other. Anyway, uh, Comparing uh, 22 nanometer x86 system chips to Apple's ARM-based 32 nanometer, this gap could widen as Intel moves to 14 nanometer production in 2014. Uh, a notable dynamic would be by becoming a foundry for Apple, it may dilute its own mobile ambitions, blah, blah, blah. So here's Intel's one option. We talked about that last time. The next is uh, TSMC that we just talked about. Uh, they would have to expend a lot of money to get their capacity up to Apple's needs. And then Global Foundries is another one. They're apparently working on a 20 nanometer process. But again, questions about uh, if they have the capacity to fab that many. And the final option is go vertical. What if Apple decides to do their own thing, build their own fabs? Uh, he says this is unlikely. Uh, but, you know, you, can, you can't get anything out when a company has $100 billion and says it has ambitious semiconductor plans. So who knows? So there are some options there. And finally, the most late-breaking one here is from our friend Philip Elmer DeWitt, also at Fortune. Friend of the, friend of the show. Yes, in our, in our Apple 2.0 section of their site, it says, RBC, Intel and talks with Apple to build iPhone processors. Uh, so here you go. This is another person from the same analyst group saying, uh, this is speculation, you know, acknowledging that there's been speculation about uh, Intel fabbing, here's how such a deal might work. And I don't know if it's one of those things like, here's how this such a deal might work. Hint, hint, like it's based on information that you can't say, or if it's just plain old speculation. Like, I imagine this is how it could work. It seems to me that this type of story wouldn't get published if there wasn't some underlying seed of truth, like someone at Intel mentioned that they had proposed this or that they might consider it or who knows. Uh, but anyway, uh, the deal is, the, the possible fantasy <laughs> speculated deal is Intel would agree to use Apple's preferred architecture for the iPhone, meaning they would fab ARM chips. In return, Apple would agree to switch to x86 and the iPad. Uh, we talked about in the last show how Intel has a roadmap of chips that will eventually be in a power envelope that can fit in an iPad-scale device. So maybe that's the deal. Maybe Intel says, okay, look, we'll fab 
your chips for your little tiny phones and iPods and stuff and we'll fab your ARM chips using our awesome process. In return, you agree to put x86 in your iPads. Uh, I don't know if Apple would agree to that because it would be weird and you'd have to start building fat binaries for the App Store and I don't know. Uh, But there you go. Uh, And according to this analyst, what's his name? Something Friedman. uh, Apple's demand for 12-inch system-on-a-chip wafers could be, not that they're 12-inch chips, but that the wafers are 12-inch, could approach 415,000, outstripping Samsung's ability to supply. So the... This question keeps coming up, not just because Apple hates Samsung, but it seems like Samsung doesn't even have the fab capacity to manufacture as many chips as Apple's going to need in 2013. So they got to go to somebody. So, I mean, obviously, Samsung could increase its fab capacity, but it seems like Apple's looking for a way out. And so they're looking for someone with more capacity. Uh, And he says, we believe that Intel has the upper hand due to limitations of capacity at the alternative sources. Uh, Chiefly uh, TSMC and Global Foundries. So... This is why he's this analyst is leaning on the Intel connection. It's like, look, no, we don't think anyone else has the capacity. No matter how much money Apple spends on it, I guess, if they build them new fabs and stuff like that, the Apple's best bet is Intel because Intel has the capacity. And we talked about in the last show how Intel has been expanding its capacity of its 14 nanometer things seemingly far beyond what it needs to manufacture its own stuff, perhaps in preparation for it to say, hey, Apple, you know, we're not only do we have the best process, we also have the most capacity. Uh, let's do a deal, put those x86 chips in the iPad. We'll fab your arm chips. Um, more stuff to watch. And finally on the Intel topic. Finally on the Intel topic. This is our good old anonymous source from last show. Back with some more All right. bits. Yes. Love this guy. Or woman. He's, we don't know. Yeah. We're just going to go with guy as okay. the, uh, the gender neutral anonymous uh, choice right now. Um. The last show I talked about how Haswell was like a slightly wider architecture than the, the Ivy Bridge chips. It wasn't a big radical change. Uh, he replied back with some other additional changes that he thought were significant. I still say they're not as significant as like, you know, the change from NetBurst to Core or whatever, but they're worth noting. Uh, Haswell adds fused multiply add uh, or FMA as it's often abbreviated, which is a feature the PowerPC chaps had. I think Altevec had for uh, ages ago. It was one of those things that used to tout as an advantage of the old PowerPC architecture. But anyway, uh, fuse multiply add is where it's just, is what it sounds like. You you multiply two products, uh, two numbers together, and you take the product of that multiplication and you add it to a, an accumulator. Uh, and it's a very common operation uh, doing like lots of 3D math and vector math and stuff like that. Uh, and if you make hardware for it, where you can say do, do a fuse multiply add in a, like a single instruction, instead of having to multiply two numbers together, take the result and then add it to another one. Uh, and it's common enough that it's worth being built into hardware. And so uh, Haswell has that. Uh, and I think that's part of AVX2. AVX is their vector extension that, that's, you know, we got SSE 1, 2, 3, and 4. Now they've got AVX and AVX2. So you can see how that's going. Uh, and he says this has huge implications for high-performance computing, which is probably true. Uh, and also there's software, tra- not software, transactional menu, hardware support for transactional memory. Transactional memory is confusing and esoteric. I've put a link into the uh, show notes for an Ars Technica article uh, titled Transactional Memory Going Mainstream with Intel has Haswell. The, I'll try to summarize transactional memory. The gist of transactional memory is uh, rather than the old way of when you have multiple threads uh, modifying the same uh, data structures in memory of like having a lock where some guy grabs a lock and says, okay, everyone else, I've got the lock. I'm going to fiddle with this data structure and it fiddles with it. Uh, secure that no one else could possibly be fiddling with it because they would all try to grab the lock and he has it. And he says, nope, you can't grab the lock. I've got it. When he's done, 
He releases the lock and then someone else goes, oh, I need the lock and grabs the lock, modifies the memory and so on and so forth. Uh, lock based, uh, you know, resolving contention with a lock is all well and good, except there's this problems about how granular do you make the locks? Like, do you put a lock on an entire giant data structure? You just put locks on little parts of it. And is, you know, does the lock block out everybody in the entire universe or just blocks out people who want to modify this one section? So lock granularity is a problem. Also, writing lock-based code, like writing the code for it, if you if you have someone forget to grab the lock and they just modify it accidentally, you've got a problem. So you have to make sure everyone grabs a lock, make sure locks are grabbed in the right order, or else you get deadlock and all the other things that are difficult to deal with. So transactional memory is supposed to be sometimes called like lock-free programming, where you don't try to grab a lock. And what happens is that everyone just tries to do everything at once with the idea that in most cases, there won't be a conflict. Uh, because the lock thing is like, always preventative like oh if anything goes wrong you know we something we could conflict with each other so i better grab this lock and maybe it's it's the case that there would have been no conflict in the car it's like cars going through an intersection with no traffic light maybe they just sort of will sail past each other uh and no one would have hit each other it would have been fine why does everyone always have to have this lock because it slows down traffic uh so transactional memory is like no locks just try to do what you were going to do and then the cpu keeps track in this case hardware transactional memory the cpu keeps track of whether there actually was a collision. So everybody just tries to do what they're going to do. And at the end of it, it says, all right, everyone did what they were going to do. Did someone else try to do something at the same time you were doing it? And if, if they did, they'll say, oops, oh, that didn't work out. We had a collision. It will roll back everything you did and say, you've got to try that over because you had a collision. It's sort of like optimistic locking, but not really. But anyway, uh, it's a way for you, for the programmer to write their programs without having to grab locks and everything, as long as they can handle the fact that in the, in the hopefully rare case where there is a collision, they will just be asked to retry uh, their operation. It's like, it's basically the opposite. It's expecting there not to be a conflict in handling it when there is, instead of expecting there to be a conflict and preventing it from ever happening. Uh, and so this, uh, Haswell has this, uh, has hardware support with this feature and it does it in a particularly clever way, uh, such that the same binary, uh, can run uh, correctly on both chips that do and don't support transactional memory features. Uh, so they have like a little prefix on their instructions and Haswell processors will honor the prefix and use the transactional memory stuff and the rollback stuff, but other processors will ignore the prefix and just treat it as a lock command. So you can write the same code and an old processor that just runs like lock code, like all these things try to grab, grab the lock and wait if they can't get it. Uh, and you know, works the old way. But on Haswell processors, it'll try to do the transactional memory thing and, you know, roll everything back if it conflicted. But if it didn't, it'll sail right through. So I have my own personal doubts about the practical usefulness of transactional memory, as do many other people, because it, it's been implemented in software before and has not set the world on fire, despite the theoretical usefulness of it. Maybe implementing it in hardware will help, but I'm not sure how many people use these features or how many people have code that is uh, contention-bound or that, that actually, like, it may be the locking code, as annoying as it is to the right, maybe it will actually still perform better or maybe... Uh, it's more difficult to handle the uh, conflict cases in the case of transactional memory. I don't know, but it's there. So that's a speculative feature, and it may turn out to be significant and may just be like, oh, well, it didn't quite work out. Uh, and also the cache bandwidth on Haswell has doubled without any latency penalty, this person would like to point out. So I put a link in the show notes that Anonymous recommended to the Real World Tech article on the Haswell CPU architecture. You can read all about it. Oh, and one more thing about, uh, I mentioned this in the last show, about Haswell being able to uh, wake up and sleep really quickly uh, as a way to save memory, right. keeping everything shut down. And I also mentioned how Intel was, you know, uh, on people about voltage regulators and stuff like that. And I don't know why voltage regulators kept coming up, but I must have read this and had it in the back of my mind. Uh, why it was such an issue is that uh, 
Intel's uh, Haswell has an on-die voltage regulator, and that allows it to wake up and sleep even more quickly uh, because it's on-die, but also it allows it to make sure that the, the chip is only using the voltage that it actually needs to do whatever it's being asked to use. So if half the chip is shut down because you know you don't need those execution units for this particular microsecond or whatever, it's kind of a shame if the voltage regulator is still sending the chip like the, the full voltage it would normally need if everything was turned on. Uh, so the source says the real benefit uh, is that it allows Intel to throttle voltage very quickly so it can operate at the most efficient voltage for the for the given workload. And since voltage has a quadratic effect on the power consumption, it's great. You know, it's not just linear. If you have the voltage, you have not just have the power. Uh, and there's also, you know, a nice savings of having thing on die instead of having a separate chip or whatever. Uh, so it's another advantage of Haswell there. Uh, and finally, this is this is the most interesting part of this anonymous feedback. Uh, last show, I spent a little while talking about TikTok and how I thought it was weird. That, like one thing was a tick when I thought it should be a talk because it seemed to me that it was like tick, the important thing, and then talk and then tick and then the little talk. And I expected tick to be like, oh, a brand new architecture. And then talk would be just we shrink it. Uh, and many people sent me mnemonics to remember it saying, well, tick has an I in it and shrink has an I. So tick is the shrink uh, or just remember it's the opposite of the way you think it is or whatever. Uh, but this source says the reason Intel has tick first is that it thinks of itself as a manufacturing company first and a design house second. Uh, so the reason tick is the important thing, like they agree, apparently agree with me that tick is like the big important thing. Mm-hmm. And that's the shrink. The shrinking is the important part. Look at us. We're Intel. We've shrunk process again. Now the smallest feature size has gone down. And the talk is, yeah, we'll make a new architecture or whatever. But tick, you know, we'll do another shrink. Uh, and another example the source says is that Intel says tape in instead of taping out. Have you heard the term taping out? Never heard that. Never? Come on. No. You built PCs. You, you know what I heard out. tapping out. Yeah, that's different. Uh, so taping out is when you're done designing a processor. I think it has to do with when they use actual tape to sort of lay out how the chip was going to be laid out. Uh, but anyway, the, ter- the term holds on. It's so you're done designing how the processor is going to do and you tape out and you send this design to your fab and they build the thing that you've taped out, right? And Intel calls it taping in. Uh, the source says this is probably a healthy, a healthy attitude because if Intel didn't have a process advantage. There's not much the design team could do to keep x86 competitive with the ARM ecosystem at this point. Uh, so taping in versus taping out, uh, it's, it's a difference in mindset. Uh, there's no difference in what actually happens. Like they still, you know, send the design to the fab or whatever. But Intel design files are converted to fab file formats verified by the fab. And then the masks are created. The difference uh, is in mindset. In design shops, they tape out to the fab. When the fab receives them, they tape in. So Intel calls it tape in as a way of making teams understand how Intel identifies itself. It's taping in. They get, you know, Intel gets the design from all those designer guys who actually make the chip. Taping in to us, Intel. Intel doesn't tape out to anyone. They tape in from the people who design the chip. So that's interesting. And I had I would not have guessed that Intel thought of itself this way. I would have thought of, thought that Intel probably thought of itself as a great designer of chips that happens to have great fabs <laughs> and this source seems to say that intel thinks of itself as an amazing manufacturer that just happens to have a team of people who design chips that it then manufactures after they tape in the designs tapping out yeah and and uh, this is i didn't plan this but here you go right after it the we're going to the miscellaneous follow-up about tape cello tape scotch tape i thought we'd put this to bed no not possible apparently uh so some follow-up on the past show had mentioned the sticky back plastic uh, and that some BB show was ridiculed for using sticky, sticky back plastic. Uh, this clarification from Mike Richmond says sticky back plastic refers to 
Fablon, I think it's a name brand. It's the generic name for the, you know, the brand name is Fablon. Sticky back plastic is a generic name. Uh, the BBC show that was infamous for using sticky back plastic was called Blue Peter. Uh, and it, it seemed to require it for almost all the Blue handicraft Peter. items on the shows. Yes. Uh, <laughs> it was the frequent usage of sticky back plastic which was the subject of derision and parody, not the fact that they were using the term to mean sticky tape because sticky back plastic is like a big, clear plastic sheet that happens to be sticky. It's not tape. Uh, and so I Googled what the hell Blue Peter is. And apparently the Wikipedia page says uh, the f- first broadcast in 1958 it is the world's longest running children's television program. But then they spelled program with an E because, you know, it's British. Yeah, they're fancy over there. So there you go. Sticky back plastic, not the same thing as sticky tape or cello tape. Show that used it, not ridiculed for using the term, but because they use the material all the time. And apparently the name brand is Fablon. Fablon? Fablon? Fablon. Sure. Yeah. And finally, last people's piece of follow-up. Boy, this is a follow-up heavy show era. I would like to wish happy birthday to Joshua Jones, a.k.a. MindFad, who is in our chat room right now. Wow. Make, maker of Nintendo icons. Uh, that I collected way back in my youth. And I saw him in the chat room and asked if he was the guy who made them. And he said, yes. And he sent me a big archive of all his icons. And I love icons. and I love Nintendo. Uh, and I know it's his birthday because his friend emailed me and told me. His friend did not provide a pronunciation guide for his name, but I'll go for it anyway. Akili Kenyatta uh, sent me an email and said that Joshua Jones would really appreciate it if he got a happy birthday greeting, even though this is not as he noted, a radio call-in show where we have birthday shout-outs to people. Yeah, we don't have like a little, like a little uh, thing for that. Yeah, it's uh, probably too late in the history of the show to, to add that, though. It's not the morning zoo. Yeah, I know you want to do the morning zoo. But I do. Will you be on that? No. Oh. <laughs> I, won't be, I won't be on the morning anything. Okay. Uh, but there you go. Happy birthday <laughs> to mine, Fad. <laughs> All right. We got to take a breather here. How, why don't? Yeah, you you do need one. Why don't we do a second? Is it time? Was it appropriate time? It's, to? it's, it's time. It is the right time. All yes. right. I've got all your links open, so everything's a little turned around. I'll tell you about Shutterstock.com, where you find over 20 million stock photos. They got vectors. They got your, they got your illustrations. They got your video clips. Uh, but what they are, they're really cool. They work with tons and tons of independent content creators all around the world, whether they're photographers or, or people who draw stuff. And they make all of this stuff available to you. It's very, very easy to search for the thing that you're looking for. Why would you want this? Maybe you get an iOS app. Maybe you're building a website. Maybe you want something for your uh, mug or your tote bag. Doesn't matter. They have something that will work for you. Maybe it's a presentation. Maybe you're about to go pitch your, uh, your new idea. Building, you're building one of those decks and you got the VC sitting there. You want to show them something cool. Tons of reasons why you might want to look at this stuff. And they make it really easy to find everything and organize it into these light boxes. And then you can take these light boxes and you can share them. You can share them with other people on your team. You can share them with your friends, whatever it is. And they can all work together and all work together to come up with something that'll be perfect. And you put it together as a package and then you buy it. And they give you the high, high, high resolution stuff. It's just one price for everything. They don't nickel and dime you. And it's more affordable than you might think. They have an iPad app, by the way, that makes this light box and curation stuff really easy. And they've got 24-hour support during the week. And you don't need to give them anything to just go there and browse and check it out. And doing that will help support this show. It'll help support the whole network. So you go to Shutterstock.com and browse around. When you figure out the thing that you want to get, use the code DANSENTME11. DANSENTME11. And you'll get 30% off, which is big. So go check it out. Shutterstock.com. DANSENTME11. Thanks very much to Shutterstock for making these shows possible. 
you were saying, you know, you use it to build your deck. I'm like, why would you need stock photos to build a deck? I was like, oh, okay. All right. Not a not a wooden deck off no. the back of your house. That's what the kids call it these days. You gotta build your deck. Yeah, that's what the kids say. Yeah. Uh, I just want to clarify that uh Joshua Jones's birthday is on December third. It is not today. But hey, who knows? Maybe by the time you're listening to this, it will be December third. If you were thinking of sending him a card. Or a gift or or, or a Wii U or anything. Because he does like Nintendo, right? No, I'm not sending him anything. All right. Just checking. Just you. All right, so the topic for today's show, the one and only lonely topic. Mm. Uh, it could be a long one, it could be a short one. Okay. I don't know. It's not Blue Peter. <laughs> no, that is a funny name. It no. is funny. No, it's not Blue Peter. Uh, although a lot of things, a lot of British things sound uh, like unintentional, uh, unintentional innuendos to American <laughs> people. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. This is the times like this when you wish Merlin was here. I know to, to riff on Blue Peter for yeah, us. Yeah, no one, not. no one does it better than no, no one does the <laughs> sexual innuendo dance better than <laughs> better than Merlin does. Yes, if only if only saying his name three times made him appear, but alas, <laughs> or made him go away. It's, that doesn't work. No one wants Merlin to go. Away. No one does. No. Once you call him out, he's there to help. It's like Beetlejuice. <laughs> yeah. Now John Roderick is there to help. <laughs> Merlin is there to help John, who's there to help us. It's a complicated relationship. Yeah. <laughs> Not the drug diagram. All right. Uh, so this is going to be, you know, you know how like in sitcoms in the 80s, uh, sitcom would start and it would be funny and you'd watch it. And then like somewhere around, I don't know, like season two and a half, they would have, they would have a very special episode. I love those. It would be like, you know, like like on different strokes, like you'd watch this funny show about these adopted children and their uh, rich, snooty father and uh, the clash of cultures or whatever. And it would be funny. And then they'd have a show about sexual abuse. Right. <laughs> and it would be like out of nowhere. So and then it would say this week on a very special different strokes. Well, here you go. This this is the <laughs> <laughs> I can't do the voice here. this week on a very special hypercritical. We're not going to talk about sexual abuse, but it's going to be more of a touchy feely topic than uh, past shows or indeed about the then the, the follow up about chip making and fabbing and Wii U accelerometers and all that stuff. Uh, and I thought of this topic because not because it's new, because anyone who has read any of these things that I'm going to cite and put in the show notes knows that many of them are like half a year old or older. But because there was just one more article, like I always put these in my Instapaper queue and I happened to read it the other day and I said, you know what, this is this is worth talking about on the show, even if it is, you know, a very special episode. <laughs> maybe that will be the title of this episode. Maybe you won't. I don't <laughs> so we're going to start. You know where this is going because you've seen the show notes. But yeah. The, the people in the chat room don't. I'm going to start with uh, something from the uh, ever handy Know Your Meme site, which mm. is good for old people. Who yeah, I was just going to say, like people like us, we, we really need this this site that's right because no i mean not just old people i find that even young people young people don't know the old people's memes and vice versa so if anyone you want to know what a meme means uh you can look it up here and the, the description of this meme makes me feel old so maybe you'll you'll agree uh this is the fake geek girl meme uh which is not a new meme as I pointed out uh link in the show notes to know your meme page uh it's listed as idiot nerd girl but it's you know it's the same thing all right here's the description from the site Idiot Nerd Girl is an advice animal image macro series. Yes, all those words are in that order on the site. 
featuring a photo of a teenage girl wearing thick rim glasses with the word nerd written on the palm of her hand. The upper caption often contains a reference to geek culture, while the bottom caption demonstrates a lack of knowledge or expertise in the subject. And then they say it bears many similarities to technologically impaired duck and musically oblivious eighth grader advice animals. <laughs> now, I had never heard the term advice animal image. Oh, no, I hadn't either. Advice animal image macro series sounds like, you know, some sort of uh, a random text generator using a spam email. <laughs> but they call it advice animal. I'm sure if I, you looked up a know your meme, they would explain exactly what advice animal is and where that comes from. But I didn't look it up. But if you have once you see it, you will know what they're talking about like oh those things with the weird background with the bright colors and the spirals and it shows some person yeah they give you a template on the, on the site to make your own yeah it is even if you don't know these terms you know what the kind of thing they're talking about and so the idiot nerd girl is it's got a picture of this poor girl whoever she actually is uh is is making fun of girls who uh seem to be nerds but don't actually know anything about the uh, you know, don't actually know anything about nerd culture. Right. Because as a comparison to pretty much our, almost our entire lives, yours and mine, and, and probably many of our listeners, um, being a nerd or a geek was not like, maybe it, w- it was acceptable, but it was not cool. Now it's cool. It's cool to the point that you will have a girl, like you're saying, who is, has no actual knowledge or connection to any kind of geek culture. Posing, posing is the word, right? Yeah, that that is what this meme is doing. It's it's trying to make fun of people. This this type of person who is a girl who is you know, seems to be a nerd, but isn't really because they don't know anything about the nerd stuff, right? So that's the meme. Um, the next article I have in the show notes is by Tara Tiger Brown. It's entitled "Dear Fake Geek Girls, Please Go Away," and it is against the people who are described in this meme. Uh, here's a quote from the, the article. Pretentious females who have labeled themselves a geek girl, in quotes, figured out that guys will pay a lot of attention to them if they proclaim they are reading comics or playing video games. Celebrities dressing up as geeks to reach a larger audience. Richard Branson labeled himself a geek for crying out loud. How do we separate the geeks from the muck? Uh, this is also related to Patton Oswald's piece in Wired magazine from a while ago called Wake Up Geek Culture Time to Die. Uh <laughs> about the the dilution of geek culture by people who aren't, you know, quote unquote, really geeks. If we actually addressed this on the incomparable way back in episode 28 mm. entitled bad at high school. I put a link in the show notes. If you'd like to hear a discussion of this Patton Oswalt article decrying the, uh, the dilution of geek culture by people who don't know all the things the geeks are supposed to know. That is kind of a superset of the fake geek girl thing, which is specifically about girls diluting geek culture. They aren't really geeks. They don't really know anything about comics. They just like to pretend they're geeks. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's the that's the context. Those are the memes here. Uh, uh, the Mary Sue is a website uh, dedicated to like uh, geek girl type of things, and they had a response to the fake geek girl. <laughs> I'm gonna try advice animal, <laughs> fake geek girl advice animal meme. They did their own meme for the geek girl meme, which is sort of like counter meme using the same images but just changing the text on the top. Uh, I put a link in the show notes for this as well. Yeah, quote from it, memes are hard to kill. It's basically their definition. And the easiest way to deal with them is by trying to ignore them. But if there's one we wouldn't mind eradicating from the internet, it would be the idiot nerd girl advice animal meme. It's emblematic of the persistent idea that it it tells people it's okay to nastily call women out for not being, quote, authentically geeky, unquote, enough. It's basically the idea that you can use the old middle school tactic of calling people posers, which, by the way, you just did, Dan, a little while ago in describing this. because they don't adhere to your own particular rules as to what qualifies as a geek or because they happen to have boobs and read comic books. 
Uh, so this is their counter meme, which is a, a clever uh, way to counter this type of thing using the same imagery with different text uh, to make fun of the people who are trying to make fun of the idiot nerd girls. Basically, you know, pointing out that the idiot nerd girl meme is very similar to people calling people imposers in the middle school cafeteria, which was a very popular thing to do. I can attest. I don't know if they still do that. I assume the posers, that's evergreen, right? I think so. I think so. Yes. Maybe less of it now. I don't know. We'll find out when our kids get to middle school, unfortunately, I'm sure. All right. Uh, So there's some more context for that for the meme. Now, finally, this is the article that made me want to talk about this topic. It is by Alex Hearn. This one is actually a recent article. I think it's been in the past few weeks or so. It's entitled... Oh God, I got to take a drink. Got to take a drink of water. Do you have one more sponsor that you want to do? Yeah, we can do it right now and do whatever, what I'm, whatever you want to do whenever you're ready. Yeah, do, Source do bits. Mobile Fading. app development house. They help you develop and design your next application or game. They instantly put over 300 dedicated programmers and interface designers behind your project full time. How's that possible? John Syracuse would say. Well, they're a full development shop and they take lots of projects. So when you show up, and you say, this is, my, this is my idea. This is the thing I want to build. I want a website that ties into a, a mobile app on, for iOS and another one for Android. They can build all of this. Or maybe you're an iOS developer and you don't want to do the website. You don't want to do the database backend. You're not interested in that because it's outside of your wheelhouse, right? Well, that's fine. They'll do the parts you don't want to do. Or they'll do everything. And they've got a really great track record. More than 500 applications they've built. For mobile, web, desktop platforms, they can do everything. 20 of which have reached the top 10 in global application marketplaces. They're really, really great. They have the end-to-end strategy. You show up with a little sketch on a napkin, doesn't matter. They'll do whatever you want. And they're really, they can scale up. And they take small projects too. You don't have to be a Fortune 500 company to work with these guys. If you go to sourcebits.com, they just redesigned this and it looks great. There's a big uh, button in the middle that says work. I guess it's a button. It's kind of like a honeycomb. You click on the work one and you can see all of the stuff that they've built. They built games, they built web stuff, consumer mobile, enterprise mobile, you name it. Just click around and see some of the applications that they built. I bet some of them are on your phone right now. Go check them out. Longtime sponsor of ours out in uh, sunny California, San Francisco, sourcebits.com. Please do check them out. They make these shows possible, John. People in the chat room have pointed out some things that I did not put into my notes and I don't know if I would work them in. Maybe we'll do it in some follow-up, but there's a related to this area that we're about to talk about and that I cited before those memes is the, the show big bang theory. Do you watch that? I have not watched it to the dismay of pretty much everybody who's ever met me. Uh, but I'm going to start watching it. Yeah. It's done though, right? It's all done. I don't know. It's not. Uh, so Big Bang Theory is a sitcom. I didn't watch it either. I saw like part of a couple episodes to know what people are talking about. Uh, like you, many people tell me that I should watch this, including my own mother tell me they should watch this. But <laughs> I'm also, I, although I don't watch the show, I have read many articles about the show. Uh, and most many of the articles are arguments amongst geeks uh, as to whether the geeks on Big Bang Theory are represented in a way that celebrates them or that is... Uh, that ridicules them or it, it the term that keep coming keeps coming up with big bang theory and part of the reason i'm not even going to talk about this because it goes off an entirely other tangent that's probably offensive to many people and i will emphasize that i did not make up this term nor have i spoken it written it or endorsed it in any way but it is repeatedly referred to on the web is that big bang theory is nerd blackface and you can uh. imagine 
why that is offensive and makes no sense in many different ways. But you can also figure out what what are they trying to communicate through their uh, indelicate terminology. And what they're trying to communicate is they think the Big Bang Theory uh, does a disservice to nerds, that it's not a celebration of nerds or whatever. So that's a whole other conversation, but it's definitely related. But I'm not going to talk about that here because we're on something else. Um, so anyway, the article by Alex Hearn, Nerds, Stop Hating Women, Please. Uh, this article starts by introducing Tony Harris, who is, have you heard of Tony Harris before looking at this article? Not before this article. You, know, you may actually know him or his work. Uh, so the article says he's in no way a household name, but he's the artist behind some of the most critically acclaimed comics of the last 20 years, notably Starman with James Robinson for DC and Ex Machina with Brian K. Vaughn for mm. Wildstar. Mm-hmm. Do you know of any of those properties? I know of them. They're not things that I am involved not, in. You're not into, but all right. No. So there you go. So maybe comics people would know this, but Tony ha- uh, Harris is apparently one of the artists. I assume he's not the writer based on what there is writing that is copy and pasted into this article because surely this person is not a writer. <laughs> if, you, if you were to look at yeah i'm going to read a substantial portion of it but you re, to really get the feel you have to really see the gigantic crazy person wall of text filled with misspellings and capital letters and bad pronunci- uh bad punctuation but that's not what's offensive and that's not the thing that about this that's offensive that i'm going to talk about it's the content uh, so here is a rant that uh tony harris posted on his facebook wall which has since been removed apparently because i followed the link and it's gone and you can kind of understand why it was removed once i read you some passages from it uh so, so start with a little bit of his intro. He says, I appreciate a pretty gal as, nux, as much as the next hetero male. But I'm so sick and tired. Cap- of will you get a capitalized H, capitalized M. Hetero yeah, I don't want, I don't want to, if I have to, if I have to spell it all, of his misspelling. <laughs> but just, yeah. I want people to get the flavor of the, of the way that the, he's going on about this. As yet another meme would say, this text passage has a flavor. <laughs> and it's not a good one. Anyway, uh, I'm so sick and tired of the whole cosplay chicks. Chicks spelled wrong, cosplay in all caps. Uh, Here's a statement I want to make based on the rule, all caps. Hey, quasi pretty, not hot girl. You are (laughs) more pathetic than the real nerds who you secretly think are really pathetic. But we're on to you. Some of us are aware that you're ever so average on a daily basis. But you have a couple of things going your way. Uh, You're willing to become almost completely naked in public and you're skinny. Well, some of you think you are. Or you have big boobies. Notice I didn't say great boobies. You are what I refer to as con hot. You can see where this rant is going. Mm -hmm. Uh, Cosplay, by the way, is when people dress up in costumes uh, as their favorite characters and go to a convention. uh, Or not not to go to a convention, but anyway, dressing up as your favorite characters from some fiction thing you're interested in, comic books, movies, or whatever. Uh, Yeah, so he's referring to these people as con hot. And uh, he says one of the things they all have in common uh, all these geeky boys at these conventions, they're being preyed on by you. You have this really awful need for attention for people to tell you you're pretty or hot. Uh, and here's the reason why all that sickens us. Because you don't know, S, which I can't say on the show, about comics beyond whatever Google image search you did to get the ref, I'm assuming he means reference, on the most mainstream character with the most revealing costume ever. If any of these guys you hang out with try to talk to you outside of that con, you wouldn't give them the effing time of day. Shut up, you damn liar. No, you would not. You're not, com- <laughs> you're not comics. You're just the thing that all comic book and mainstream press flock to at cons. The real reason for the con uh, and the damn costumes you're parading around in, that would be the comic book artists and the comic book writers who make all this stuff up. I, I remove parts of that rant, but yes. that's, the, that's the gist of it. I think you can get the, the feel for where this person is coming from and how it relates to the fake geek girl meme 
with a specific focus on cosplay at this point. You know, it's these people dressing up this way and they're not, you know, real geeks. So this, this is leading me into what this article is about and this particular strain of fake geek girl meme stuff is what leading me into is the section of the show where we'll, which I call Let's Talk About Misogyny, Dan. Is that a, is that a good recurring segment? Yes. I I, it is. Maybe it won't recur at all. Maybe this will be the only one. But let's, yeah. let's talk about misogyny. All right. And if you're listening and don't know what misogyny is, that's the hatred of women by men, right from the OS 10 dictionary. Very succinct definition. Uh, but let's also talk about geek culture uh, because I think that actually is on topic for the show. So geek culture is something I'm an observer of, but I'm also a part of as a geek. And I think it's on topic of the show because you could subtitle this section. What's wrong with geek culture? Uh, we haven't had one of those. What's wrong with for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and as part of this, I want to talk about one of the causes of misogyny. There are many causes of misogyny as there are causes of any, uh, you know, many causes of any kind of hatred. But there's one in particular that's relevant to Tony Harris's terribly spelled incoherent screed that I just read passages from. Uh, But before I get into that, I want to say I'm not going to describe a cause of misogyny as a way to explain away or excuse or justify the behavior. A lot of times when people are trying to explain, like, let me explain to you why, why someone does something. The explanation is either seen as or really is meant as a, a justification. It's like, no, you don't understand. Yes, this person did this bad thing, but let me tell you why they did this bad thing. And when they're done explaining it to you, you feel like, oh, so you are you saying that, all right, now that I understand why they did it, that it's okay? They're like, now, oh, I see why they did it. Now it makes sense to me. Uh, and whether the person intended it or not, that's kind of the feeling. So I want to head that off and say my explanation of why, <laughs> why this exists is not meant as uh, an excuse or like, oh, now I get it. Now it makes sense to me. Now it's perfectly justified. Uh, I'm going to describe it because I hope it will help the people who behave this way to stop behaving this way. It's not aimed at the outside world who observe this behavior. It's aimed at the people who perpetrate it. Uh, and this is part of the sort of, you know, meta point for this, this entire show and my original hypercritical article on Ars Technica way back when. The idea that understanding why you do something is a pretty important first step in stopping doing it. Because if you don't know why you're doing things, you're just doing things and you don't understand the causes of it. How are you ever going to change your behavior? You don't even understand what's causing the behavior in the first place. And, you know, figuring out what's wrong with something, what's going wrong, what's causing this to happen, not just within yourself, within anything is, you know, a, a particular strain of criticism self-criticism so that's why i'm i'm going to try to explain this and this explanation is not earth shattering uh or whatever but but here we go so nerdy geeky guys of which there are probably many listening to the show and hosting the show uh are so (laughs) many many hosts many listeners yes are, are often you know socially isolated or ridiculed during childhood uh to varying degrees. Would you say this, this is an accurate assessment of your childhood? Yes, absolutely. And so, you know, this happens, uh, sometimes because of our awkwardness or interests or, you know, just a combination of things. It's not, it doesn't have to be one type of thing. And in sort of the Lord of the flies world of middle school and high school, this usually means greatly decreased desirability to the opposite sex. I think you would agree with that. It can mean that. Yes. Yes. All right. So, this leads to the following situation. So say you've got a you know adolescent heterosexual male, right? And he's a geek. 
All right. But like any other adolescent heterosexual male, that geek boy is really, really, really interested to girls. Just happens biologically. Trust me. It's, it is an all-consuming thing that happens at that time in, in, in a young boy's life, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Inevitable. Yes. But he doesn't get what he wants. He wants girls, but because of all the things we just mentioned about the geeks and, and, you know, it's just generally being ostracized and awkward and strange and interested in weird stuff, uh, he can't get no, as the man says, <laughs> right? Yes. <laughs> that was the whitest reading of yes. uh, I'm Blind by White Man ever, but there you go. Uh, he doesn't get what he wants, all right? And so this this formula can easily lead uh, to anger. The, the you know the geek boy really wants this thing, and he can't get it. And every time he tries to get it, he fails and feels worse. Uh, and it's kind of like a toddler's tantrum, something that I'm sure you and I are both very familiar with, way too familiar with at this point. Where you know, like you have a three or four year old, and if they want something, you know, they want the cookie or they want the toy or they don't want to take a bath or whatever, and you and you deny them the thing that they want, they throw a tantrum, they stamp their feet, they, you know, they scream and yell, "I want the bus!" Like the end of the, they just incoherently flail out with anger, right? And that kind of tantrum response, we associate that with a toddler because you know, if you saw an adult do that, if you did, if an adult didn't get a raise in the office and he goes on the floor, <laughs> lays on the floor and stomps his feet in his hands and yells and screams and cries that he really wants that raise, we would say that's not appropriate behavior for an adult right but those pathways in our brains are still in us even as adults and certainly certainly as preteens and adolescents like even though we know that you're not supposed to throw tantrums or whatever that that connection i want something i'm not getting it i'm angry now incoherent tantrum all that is still there it's just kind of like masked by civilization and learning you know the correct way to act and partly matched by shame because you know if you did actually throw a tantrum in the middle of the lunchroom because the girl doesn't like you that would not be a good idea right uh, and so they have this anger, right? But where is that anger directed? Well, it's not going to be directed into a tantrum because that's that's not viable for even a preteen or whatever. They know that's not the right way to do it. You that anger may be initially directed against you know the, the, the self. The boy can start to be angry at himself. Well, you're so stupid. Why you have to be so weird and geeky? You know, blah blah blah. Because he can't he can't get again. Let's get back to this. He can't get what he wants. He, he may not even understand why he wants girls, but he definitely does. And he can't get them to talk to him, pay attention to him. Like we're not saying this is like a self actualized person. He just knows girl want yes, and he knows not getting girl bad right. <laughs> because <laughs> it's, it's definitely not high minded. It's very <laughs> right. And if, but you know, so he could be angry at himself. But this can also eventually lead to anger against females. They can start to be seen as the enemy that's refusing to give you what you want. So the, you know, it's like you're you're not going to throw a tantrum, and you're done hating on yourself. Maybe you have some sort of ego that like says, "No, you know what? This is not my fault." You know whose fault this is, Dan? It's the girl's fault. Those uh-huh. females. I want, and they're they're refusing to, you know get with me and but don't they understand this is what i want they're they're evil they are they are denying me this thing that i want right now this is nonsensical yeah and effed up in but it's, it's obvious ways very aggro kind of angry you know but this makes sense if you're a guy listening to this this all kind of in, an, in a sad way this makes sense yeah like if you're a girl listening to this you know how crazy this sounds right and if you're a guy listening to this i hope you also know how crazy it sounds but you probably also have felt this at some point in your life but the thing is like if you think about it for two seconds it makes no sense like the these the first of all these girls as if they're one homogenous species right they're they think with one mind like a hive mind females right uh, these are the people that you want to be with and 
how, how can you ever expect to enter into a, a loving lifelong relationship with someone of the opposite sex if you've come to view them all as evil enemies? And yet this happens, right? That they are the enemy because they are denying you everything in life. And I don't want to get into the whole crazy Freudian mother issues and all sorts of other causes. I'm just focusing on this one thing, simple adolescent boy, geek, wants girls, can't get, therefore girls are enemies, right? So this is all very obvious to most people, but I think it is not obvious to the people who perpetrate the worst acts of misogyny. Certainly, Tony Harris seems completely unaware of this connection that I've just drawn here, while he repeatedly demonstrates the symptoms in his little essay. I mean, if you look at that essay, how can you not see somebody who is angry at women because of his failures with women? Uh, I don't know anything about him. Maybe he's got a, uh, you know, he's happily married. Maybe he has healthy, well-adjusted relationships. But everything he says screams, I am angry at women in general. Yes. Not, you know, I don't like women and I don't like them for because I've been rejected by them. So let me insult them in all the ways that, den that denigrate them along the axes that I care about. You know, you're not as hot as you think you are. As if being hot is the, you know, the be all and end all of these women. You know, he... He views them only as a things uh, in this in this thing that he wrote. I have no idea what he's like personally. But this thing that he wrote, it's entirely about how you are not fulfilling my desires and how, you know, and, and the, the worst insult I can give to you is how you do not fulfill my criteria adequately. Uh, that That's how I tear you down. And that's why I hate uh, all females here. So I would say that if you're an adolescent heterosexual male nerd listening to this, which I have to imagine there's some a there's of. yeah there's two three maybe in our audience. Well, I mean, adolescent. I'm sure there's plenty of heterosexual male nerds listening to this, but adolescents, I don't know if they're into this, right? Uh, but if you are, if you happen to be a young person, I guess if you're if you're an adult as well, uh, now is the time, especially for the adolescents. That's why and now is the time to start to be vigilant. Uh, don't let think about this connection that I just made and just sort of observe it dispassionately. Try to disconnect yourself from it and you know realize how absurd it is and don't let yourself fall into this trap. And to, to do that by understanding how and why you could start to feel this way. Because like, like you said, Dan, even though this sounds ridiculous and absurd, almost every male listening to this, whether they're going to admit it publicly or not, has had feelings like this and hopefully has examined them and said, wait a second, this is idiotic. It makes no sense. This is not, you know, th this anger is being directed to the wrong place, right? So understand why this happens and why it makes no sense. As, as a wise man once said, Dan, don't give it the hate that leads to the dark side, right? <laughs> I think understand, understanding this is an important step. Think about it, understand it. And so if ever, if ever you feel that way, have the rational part of your brain intervene, cut it off and uh, think about it. So uh, getting back to Alex Hearn's uh, nerd, stop hating your women, please thing. Uh, he continues, this is him narrating, the views expressed by Harris uh, aren't just held by virulent misogynists. Instead, they're depressingly common in geek culture. I don't know why that's in scare quotes, but it is. Too many nerds have basically internalized the stereotype of themselves as ugly, friendless losers and decided that anyone who doesn't fit that stereotype, particularly women, is a fake geek taking advantage of the fact that being a geek is now cool. So he's, he's brought this back around to, you know, uh, I guess kind of relate to the Big Bang thing or whatever, saying nerds don't cling to this image of yourself as uh, as friendless and and terrible and saying, oh, someone who doesn't fit that mold isn't a real geek, right? Uh, because that's another pathway to <laughs> blaming all women for your own problems, right? And, and becoming a misogynist. Uh, so 
Here is an essay relating to this from Susanna Polo. I think it's also on the Mary Sue. It's called On the Fake Geek Girl with fake and scare quotes, finally appropriately in this case. Um, <laughs> I understand the desire to weed out posers uh, out of your personal life and interactions, but I have never actually in the, fre- in the flesh met a fake geek girl or guy. I don't think these people actually exist outside of painful daytime news segments and occasional job interviews and internet memes, but I understand. Who are you to say that a stranger, someone you're never likely to meet, is not genuinely interested in the thing they appear to be interested in? I guess it is Mary Sue. It says, here at Mary Sue, when an actress goes on a talk show and describes her personal affection and involvement and enjoyment and fandom for geek properties, we take it at face value. Why? Because we don't actually have a reason not to. Because all alterna- the alternative breeds a closed community of paranoid elitist jerks who just lash out at anyone new. Her summary here is uh, a great, this, this should have been like bullet points in the, in the entire content of the article, right? The proper response to, to someone who says they like comics and has only ever read Scott Pilgrim is to recommend some more comics for them. The proper response to someone who appears to be faking enthusiasm is to ignore them, not to project their actions onto an entire gender or community. The proper response to someone who appears to want to be a part of your community is to welcome them in. End of story. That is a very good summary of what you should be doing instead of the crazy things that many people are doing. Uh, This is what I think should, and in my experience, most often does define geek culture at its best. It's a bunch of people who maybe had a difficult childhood and are ostracized and excluded, taking those experiences that they had in childhood and learning from them, not to like seek revenge by treating other people the way they were treated, but to learn the opposite lesson by learning how hard it is to be treated like that and then mm. vowing never to make other people feel the way that they felt. Well, that would like, be the like high the, road, taking the high road. It's not the high road, it's like the two paths. It's like light, dark side, light side, right? Because you can see how the experience can lead you to the dark side. And the, but the light side is the opposite side of that. Having this just terrible, miserable experience and, and just like vowing, saying, you know, sort of as God is my witness, I'll never be hungry again. But like as God is my witness, I will never make anyone else feel the way I'm feeling right now. A geek culture as it, at its best is welcoming. We don't care if you're awkward, ugly, fat, smelly, inarticulate, or yes, even female, plus any of the above combined, right? Do you want to talk about the nuances of Pokemon strategy? I'm interested in that too. Come, not me personally, but, you know, theoretically, come, welcome. Let's talk about that, right? And, and yes, also, even if you're female, cosplaying in some scantily clad thing and attractive, welcome. You, you know, we'll relate to you as a human being who wants to talk about The Legend of Zelda or League of Legends or WoW or whatever you want to talk about. We'll treat you like a human being, regardless of your appearance, social skills, interests, you know, anything. Because we know what it's like to be treated badly based on who we are, not on who we are, but on how we look or what we're interested in. We, that's the whole point. Like, we, di- we experience that. These people don't know who I am. They're down on me because I'm into Dungeons and Dragons or right. because I don't know how to dress or because I'm awkward and you know, inarticulate or whatever thing about you. We know what it's like to be treated that way in the same exact way when some super hot, beautiful, cosplaying person, scantily clad, comes up to you at a con and wants to talk to you, relate to her as a human being who's interested in whatever the heck she's interested in and ignore her. Who cares what she looks like, you know, or, you know, it's, 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 that's the lesson we should learn. Not like, oh, we should all hate all these females because they're not, because they're not like us and because they, you know, ignored us in, in high school or whatever. Uh, PAX is a great example of this. PAX with the uh, Penny Arcade Expo, which you are going to this yes, year. Yes, I am. Yes. Uh, at its best, and it's very, very often at its best, is a judgment-free zone. That's what I would call it. Nice. It's, we all come there because we all love gaming 
and of some stripe, board games, video games, whatever it is, we're all gamers. We just happen to all also a lot of the time be, you know, awkward and articulate geeks. And we all come together. Uh, and and it's like it's kind of like I can think of an example going somewhere where you can finally relax. Like now I know no one here is going to be judging me because I'm a geek. Maybe in your, in your job, you don't feel that way because you feel like I have to hide the fact that I'm a LARPer on a weekend. Right. You know, <laughs> I mean, we make fun of that ourselves. Like, oh, it's all LARPing. Right. Like that's, about, right? Yeah. That's the one. So even, PAX, even we can make fun of LARP. Yeah. Well, no, but PAX is like, PAX is a judgment free zone. No matter what you're interested in, we're in this place in this time, we're going to set aside to say, we are not going to, uh, we're not going to care. Everyone is the same. Everyone is welcome. No one is judged based on whatever the thing is that they're interested in, as long as they're not hurting other people, right? And this extends far, far outward from like gaming and geek stuff or whatever, all the way out to things like sexual orientation, transgender, everything like that. Uh, again, it's about relating to people as people, not according to what their labels are, what their appearances are, what their what their weird interests, weird to you may be. Uh, and I think this is also why we have so many geeks, myself included, feel such a visceral connection to homophobia and gay rights. I don't know if you feel this as well, but I, I, I realized this several years ago. I'm like, why is it that I get like, you know, like my, my adrenaline starts pumping. It's like, I get the flight or flight response anytime, <laughs> anything having to do with, you know, anything, you know, sort of, sort of hate crimes and homophobia and all the gay rights stuff. It's like, why am I having this reaction? I realized I'm having this reaction because it's exactly the same thing as, you know, being treated badly for who you are uh, unfairly. Right? right. It doesn't matter what the part of who you are, is it just it it shouldn't be that way and it's right. uh, injustice and it's, is injustice yeah and it's exactly and it's it, it makes you i think growing up a geek and being subject to that makes you you know it can do several things it can make you into a terrible misogynist yes but it can also turn you into someone who is like keenly attuned to other people who are being like you know that person is feeling the way you felt maybe even a hundred times worse and but like you know that feeling right you know like that's terrible that must be stopped right and like, it's like you know it, it triggers the fight or flight response just adrenaline pumps into your system right now i know I try to avoid political stuff on this show or whatever. Uh, but in my opinion, this is a this is a human rights issue, not a political thing. And if you've decided now to write off the entire 96 episode run of this podcast and ignore all my future work, I'm sorry, but certain things are worth standing up for. And this is one of them. So uh, anyway, the lesson of this very special episode of Hypercritical or very special. Moral. Is it a moral episode. or a lesson? I don't know what it is. You can decide. <laughs> I'll, I'll say in the immortal words of George Carlin. Starring, co-starring, I don't know, he was featured in a movie that may be older than some of the people listening to this uh, podcast right now. Be excellent to each other, Dan. I think that's the lesson. Okay. Kind of like an uh, eye for an eye. No, not that's not. (laughs) That's a totally different. Treat others how you would like to be treated. Yeah. Isn't that the golden rule? Because the reason I got all worked about this and decided to put it in the show is like I read all these things, you know, these geek culture related things with the fake geek girls and everything. And it seemed like people were losing the thread. It was like, no, don't you understand, guys? Like, I thought it seems to me that there's a there's a vast agreement on this. Like when I go to PAX, I feel like, yes, we all understand. It's unspoken. Everyone here understands this is the place where we can all come and be at our best. And at our best is not judging anybody for anything, not making anyone feel the way some of us may felt for whatever reasons. No matter what they're into, you know, and like ideally that would extend out to everyday life and everywhere. But like this is a safe place where you can go. And it's like, don't we all agree on that? And then the fake geek girl thing is like, no, that is the exact opposite. That is going to that convention. And then somehow this little virulent strain of virus gets in there. It's like, 
well, everyone's welcome here, except for those fake geek girls who give me funny feelings and wear outfits, and they're not really into that anyway. It's like, no, it's the opposite. If they want to come and they want to dress like someone they've never heard of, who cares? Like, you're supposed to welcome them, you know? That's the whole point. And it kills me that that happens in this venue, in the one venue, you know, in these convention type things where it's supposed to be the exemplar of how how we geeks are supposed to act, the best of the best. And this comes in and it's just the exact opposite of everything that we're all supposed to be about. So it, it just pissed me off. It pissed me off that these threads are bouncing. That there are arguments about this. Well, you don't understand. Fake geek girls really are fake. And they need to, and it's not just from, you know, misogynist males. Like one of the articles I read here uh, cited was written by, by a female saying, yeah, these fake geek girls stop trying to be a geek or whatever. Uh, I get back to the bullet points that, uh, what was that author's name? So I got to get it out here again oh where was that susan what was her name susanna polo you know it just lays it out for you the proper response is you know if, if you see someone who who is like falls into this category well they're a fake geek girl they don't know about so tell them about other cool stuff don't assume like you don't really like it you're just posing for some crazy no that like if, if they really are posing for attention like who cares like everyone is welcome if, if they want to be part of your community, they're welcome. That's the whole that's the whole point. No one comes and says, well, you could come and sit down and play a board game with us, but you're dressed as some crazy character and, you know, uh, you're weird and pimply and articulate and smelly. So you have to go someplace else. That, that should never happen at, you know, in real life, A. But if we can't do it in the entire world, then at the very least at PAX and in our conventions. So It's the Sorry. one place you're safe. Yeah, and real and really, it should be everywhere. But like, can we start with can we start with conventions? Can we not have you know? It just it just pisses me off. What what brought all this on? I don't, just seeing these articles, like as if there's, it's kind of like you know, I don't want to get into political stuff, right? But I see seeing that there's a there's a debate, like oh, this is the topic we need to debate, and we have to have pro and con against fake geek girl. No, this there is no there's no there's no pro for the, for that meme. There's no. There's no there there. There's no reality of that meme. It's not like, well, some there are real, some real fake. No, the whole point, if they come to the show, they dress as somebody that, you know, they're welcome. They're not less welcome because they happen to be, uh, you know, a beautiful woman than they would be if they were, you know, a horrible, ugly, trolled, adolescent, pimply boy. Like everyone is welcome. No faking, no posing, no anything. That's That's the point. And it just drives me nuts that there are articles bouncing around the web over the course of an entire year debating this as if it's not like like people are people just losing you know what the whole point is and it, it seems crazy to me like i figured it would all just go away because if you ever attend packs you you feel that you're like everyone pretty much agrees you know that this is the way it's supposed to be but there's this little apparently this little tiny thread worming its way through there you know infecting people's minds and it's screwing things up and needs to be it needs to be uh corrected and stamped out and we need to be conscious of it No, I, 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 you're I upset. I can tell you're upset. I am. I don't know. This this could be. This is gonna say. This is where the show jumped the shark when he started to get into that political stuff and did these big rants about things and called me a misogynist. And I didn't like that part. Uh, well, sorry guys. The show's ending soon anyway, so you'll be safe. Yeah, people were saying that the final episode should be about free will. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna go there. I'll go here though. I'll go here because like I think this, this is on topic. Geek culture. Definitely on topic for hypercritical. Be excellent to each other, folks. You have anything to add, Dan, from your experience? <laughs> I don't have anything to add to, to this. You cover it all. I mean, first of all, you cover it all. But second of all, you know, I think there's a lot of, I think it's different nowadays. I talk to people today in, in their, you know, 
like 20s. If you're in your 20s right now, it's you're growing up in a very different world, at least from the geek standpoint. I can't, I can't speak to the other topics you brought up. But in the geek standpoint, people who are, who are in, in our generation who would have been considered to be misfits or uncool, like I remember I have a vivid memory of being, I guess it was 11 years old, and uh, Devo's album with Whip It on there came out. This is vinyl, folks. And I had this album, and I loved this album. And I felt like Devo was speaking not directly to me in the sort of crazy way, but like these were my kind of guys. Like they made music that I liked. They were weird, and they were unafraid to be weird. They were unafraid to sort of, and I, I couldn't, have, couldn't have verbalized it this way when I was 11 years old. But they were unafraid to challenge authority and do unconventional things and, and have fun with it. And make it fun and make it interesting and make it something that was different from everything else that was out there. And yet somehow go a little bit, get, get, get popular. I don't want to say go yeah. mainstream, but, and I remember talking to somebody uh, who, you know, was a quote unquote friend of mine, I thought. And like we were talking about music or something in, 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 in the classroom one day. And uh, I said, oh, gee, you know, have you ever listened to Devo? You know, that cool song Whip It. Have you ever listened to that? And he's like, you listen to Devo? I was like, yeah. He, and he like, he did the little, like you take your four fingers, you know, the Ultraman, uh, the thing where you, if you were Ultraman, how you would shoot out the, uh, the main attack, like you cross your hands over one. Well, he made like the little Christian cross with his two fingers. One goes one way, one goes the other, like a T with your fingers and was like, what's wrong? You know, like get away from me. But that's, that was not an isolated incident. That was like, if you, if you like were into weird stuff, like that was normal, you know, that was the normal response that I ran into throughout like all of, and you eventually learn like, well, I guess I can't talk about anything I like, you know, like you find the one or two other kids who like, like D and D and you're all kind of shamefully admitting to each other. Maybe, maybe I kind of like that thing. And then you find out the other kid likes it. You're like, dude, I love D and D. You know what I mean? And, and, and it was like, you had to almost like downplay it. You had to. To, it was bad enough that like, you know, you couldn't play sports, you know, but you didn't want to give the, the you know, show completely show your hand. And that really sucks. Now it's like, oh, you do this different thing that other people don't do. Like now you're setting a trend. So I think I think that aspect of it has changed. And I've, I've talked to people about this and it seems like people's minds are open a bit more to this kind of thing, at least in major cities, I would say. <laughs> I'd like, to, I'd like to think that the trend is positive, but I have to think that just because the specific things that may have been you'd been ridiculed for when we were kids are now uh, more accepted. There's just something else that replaces it. Like there's always that's something a good point. that some kid is getting like, you know, th things are evergreen, like being ugly and awkward. That will never be cool. Right. Being ugly is the worst thing in the entire world in like middle school and high school. Right. And that's never going to change. There's no trend. There's not going to not going to. Oh, you're a trendsetter. You're hideously ugly. No, it's not going to happen. And being awkward, like physically awkward, socially awkward, that is never going to be cool and popular. Right. So there's always something that people are being slammed for. Uh, and, you know, th that's I'm trying to be vigilant about that. It's like, oh, it's not a big deal. I, when I was a kid, I couldn't admit I liked computers. But nowadays it's cool. Well, that may be true. And maybe your kid is lucky and he happens to be into computers and, you know, it's not a big deal, but there's always going to be something, right? Because kids are animals, you know? <laughs> so I, I'm vigilant to, to I, I don't want to like say, yeah, I hope it has gotten better, you know, but I, 
not that much better. You know what I mean? So I was going to wa- make sure that I don't like, oh, you don't understand, kid. When I was a kid, you couldn't play D&D. Now you got it so easy. Maybe they right. don't have it easy. Maybe no, no, being- they do. no, you're right yeah. about it replacing it. But I'm just saying like a lot of the things that I think I, I don't want to say we, but that I remember from my childhood, a lot of those things have gone away and people, it, it, it seems like they're more accepting, like you're saying, they're more accepting of those kinds of things. And, and some of those things have kind of become cool, but it's always interesting for me to, to, to wonder why they've become cool and, and other things that have replaced them. It seems like those things have gotten more intense and almost worse. Well, I, I, I feel like the, the, the way it works is that, uh, you know, the generation that was into those things became adults. And now like we control the world, right, Dan, you control it from your console there under the volcano. Sure. All right. And we get to decide that computers are cool because we changed the world with them. So you're welcome. Right. But, uh, <laughs> and you know, as we grow to it, like, just like the kids who are, you know, maybe not Devo, but I guess kind of like when that generation grows up to adulthood, uh, and if they are successful, they can influence the way the culture looks so now you know and plus computers just become common so like how can they be uncool like they're everywhere deal with it right uh so that that's how i think that trend happened but what happens is and this is what we call progress it sounds terrible but this is called progress is when the thing that was uncool becomes acceptable you just pull from the bin that's down there the big black velvet bag with like uh the green smoke coming out of it and you just reach your hand in there and you pull the next thing up when i was in high school you know, we had gay kids in our class, but nobody talked about them. It mm-hmm. was like totally in the closet type of thing. Now it's like, all right, so fine. It's okay to be a geek or whatever. Let's reach into that bag. Oh, look what we found. Homosexuality. Mm. All right. Well, now that's going to come up and we're going to have to deal with that as a real thing. And so next, whatever, you know, it's the same thing with, you know, generations, whatever you think you're comfortable with. Oh, I'm very comfortable and tolerant. Oh yeah. I'm going to reach into the bag again. Oh, look, transgender people. How do you feel about that? And you're like, oh, wait, wait a second. I'm not comfortable with that. Right. There's always something in the bag for you to reach down to that's going to test your, you know, tolerance, right? And that sounds terrible that each time we have to deal with this new type of thing, but that's progress. Like, it's good that now, you know, that that uh, gay kids in high school have clubs and support groups and are out in the open and, you know, any kind of hatred towards them or whatever is stamped down. Like, that's progress, right? But they have to fight. They had to fight that fight, and it's still not easy for them, you know? Uh, and. And when, once that's done, like three generations from now, when we have a gay president and it's no big deal and we look back on anyone who thought of it as a big deal as barbaric, right? Uh, that will be progress too, but there will always be something else down in that bag that will pull up. You know, who it's going to be like people with like alien DNA by then. Who knows? But like the, <laughs> this stuff down there, like th- I think transgender is a great example because lots of people who are, you know, totally pro gay rights and everything are still uncomfortable with that. But like, you know, <laughs> there's always a more marginalized group. And then, like I said, the things that are evergreen, uh, physical attractiveness, anti-intellectualism is another big one. I, I felt that a lot in school that like being smart was not cool. And that seems crazy to me, but I think it's still there. That's definitely still there. Right. And it depends on the school. It depends on the environment you're in and stuff like that. But yeah, there's, there's always something down there. Uh, but, but yeah, that, I think that's, that should be the, the hallmark of geek culture is, uh, you know, just picking the group that I happen to be in, but like if you experience, I and mean, that should be the hallmark of gay culture or any type of, you know, marginalized group. If you experience any kind of uh, discrimination and, you know, exclusion and ridicule in your formative years because of something that, you know, that's part of your nature that, that should not be condemned, but is what you should bring from that is, like I said, the, 
the, the mission in life to never make another person feel this way. And if you see someone making someone else feel this way, even if it's about something that has nothing to do with you, you can say, it doesn't matter. I, you know, I'm not gay, but I know what that gay kid feels like right now. And it's terrible. and needs to stop. Right. Uh, that that's what we should be bringing out of this. And I think that's what, I think that's what most geeks do bring out of it. I think that's what should define geek culture. Uh, and when it doesn't, something is going wrong. This was, really was a very special episode. Don't you think, man? It was very special. This In is a whole <laughs> different side of you. You waited, you know, nine, 95 episodes to reveal it. It's the same side. It's the geek side. <laughs> yeah. So is that it? And, yeah, I think that's it. And it's a short show. 102 minutes. All right. Well, if you want to talk to John about this, he will engage with you best, I would say, on Twitter, which is uh, Syracusa, S-I-R-A-C-U-S-A on Twitter. He's also on alpha.app.net, Syracusa. He's also at Syracusa. just for you, Syracusa.tent.is. And uh, if you would like to send an email, John obviously does read those and many times we will we'll Read them on the air, 5by5.tv slash contact. You just speak hypercritical and hit send. It'll go to him and me. And uh, I think that's it. I'm Dan yeah. Benjamin on Twitter. Show notes are at 5by5.tv slash hypercritical slash 96. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Bye, John. Bye, now. Bye.